If you have your Bibles with you this morning, please turn with me to Psalm 76. We'll read that psalm together, and then we will try and discover what God is teaching us this morning. Psalm 76. I'm going to read all 12 verses of that. Psalm 76, beginning at verse 1, In Judah God is known. Judah was the chief or uppermost province of the land of Israel. In fact, at the end it was probably all that was left, it and Benjamin. But in Judah God is known. His name is great in Israel. His tent is in Salem, which is an abbreviation for the city of Jerusalem. It comes from the word shalom, which means peace. His tent is in Salem, his dwelling place in Zion. There he broke the flashing arrows, the shields and the swords, the weapons of war. You are resplendent with light, more majestic than mountains rich with game. Valiant men lie plundered, they sleep their last sleep. Not one of the warriors can lift his hands. At your rebuke, O God of Jacob, both horse and chariot lie still. You alone are to be feared. Who can stand before you when you are angry? From heaven you pronounced judgment, and the land feared and was quiet, when you, O God, rose up to judge, to save all the afflicted of the land. Surely your wrath against men brings you praise, and the survivors of your wrath are restrained. Make vows to the Lord your God and fulfill them. Let all the neighboring lands bring gifts to the one to be feared. He breaks the spirit of rulers. He is feared by the kings of the earth. We just remembered Remembrance Day. We just observed it. And I don't know for how many of you that's a significant event. And maybe some of you just kind of let it pass by. It was a day when you didn't have to go to work or, or a day when you could do chores at home or whatever. But for me, it's a major event. And as a country and as a world, we came through a horrendously difficult times, or some horrendously difficult times. And I, I, I remember reading a story about this one mom who struggled with this whole concept of Remembrance Day, and, and her son didn't want to go to school on the Thursday before Remembrance Day because he said it was boring. All that would happen was some, some old men would come to the school and and give long speeches and read poems. And so it really didn't mean a whole lot to him. But the reality is that, that as a country of Canada, and as a Dutch boy, we went through a horrendous time. For me, Remembrance Day brings back a lot of memories. And my niece, one of my nieces who is now uh, in California for part of the winter, posted on something on Facebook the other day about you know, how, how she had heard from her mom about this. And I said, hey, by the way, your dad gave me a box of stuff, and I have some of your mom's memorabilia in, in, in there. Are you interested? And she says, yes, I want it. Because to her, it's, it's still, you know, she heard about it, and, and I heard about it to a degree from my parents, but people like my sister were there. I didn't live through either of the great wars. I didn't live through five years of occupation and terror like my parents did. I didn't experience the horrors of war, the wounding, the killing, and the hardships. I didn't lose friends. I didn't lose children who willingly gave themselves for the sake of others. 
I wasn't wounded physically or mentally and left handicapped for the rest of my life like even some of our soldiers are right now as they come back from Afghanistan. And Kathy asked me the question as, as we were talking about this and, and she was here for this presentation I did on Thursday morning and Kathy said, was there ever a war fought that was justified? Uh, and I said, well, you know what was justified, like the Second World War, we weren't going to stand for that. We, we, we fought it in that sense it was justified. But she said, you know, like, was Hitler justified in trying to rule the world? And I said, no. And probably there hasn't been a war fought that was justified from that sense because war doesn't make sense. Think about it. Why would people need to destroy each other to satisfy the power and greed complexes of those who are in leadership? And yet that's, what part, uh, that's, that's part of what makes us human. We have this urge to control others, to control things around us. You see it, uh, we've experienced it, I've experienced it from the bully on the playground uh, to, to you name it. People do it to each other in the context of marriages and families and there are criminals and terrorists who seek to advance themselves and their causes at the expenses of other people. And then there's this whole thing called persecution, which means simply that you make another miserable for his or her beliefs. My own background, coming out of, out of, out of Normandy and, and back in the Middle Ages, uh, there was a tremendous persecution, which is why I wound up as a Dutch kid. My name doesn't make sense in Holland. It's not Vander anything. But we came from France, and so... You know, that, that was part of the persecution that happened to the Protestant in, in the 1500s. And so the people from France moved up to Holland. Many of them wound up in South Africa, and that's how I got there. But it doesn't make sense. Why are people being persecuted simply because they either believe differently or they believe in the name of Jesus? The persecution that, that, that my ancestors went through came from the Roman Catholic Church who believed in the same God and the same Savior that we do, but we just did things differently, and so we were wrong. And so they, they, they burned us at the stake, they tortured us, they drug us through the streets. And some of that is still happening. The one video I was going to show you this morning, and I hope to be able to roll it for you tonight, a family that was turfed out of their village in Mexico, not by any, any Mexican government action, but just by the local authorities who say, uh, you know, you don't party like the rest of us, and so you have to leave. And so this, this man and his wife and his children, one of whom was a, an adult child, she's 20 years old, has two children, her husband left her because of this. Why? Simply because they trust in the name of Jesus. Doesn't make sense. And that leaves us with questions like this. Where is God in all this? Does he not know what's going on? Does he not care? If he has all the power, why isn't God doing something about the misery that I'm experiencing in my life? Is God is, if God is committed to taking care of his people, then why do his people need to suffer? Some of those questions I don't have answers for. But the reality is, and the Bible would teach us, that even though we may not see it, God does involve himself in the lives of his people.
even though you may not see it, even though you may not feel it, God does involve himself in your life, in my life, in the lives of our families, in the lives of our ancestors, in the lives of our children and grandchildren who may yet come, in the lives of those who are being persecuted around this world because they name the name of Jesus Christ, and in the lives of those who are suffering and struggling just because someone else is on a power kick. God involves himself, himself in the lives of his people. And there's some ways that we can, as we look at this psalm, there's some ways that we can learn in which God involves himself in the lives of his people. Let's take a look again at verses 1 through 3. They read like this. In Judah God is known, his name is great in Israel. His tent is in Salem, his dwelling place in Zion. There he broke the flashing arrows, the shields and the swords and the weapons of war. Jerusalem is a city that has changed hands more than other city, any other city in the world. During its history, Jerusalem has been destroyed twice, besieged 23 times, attacked 52 times, and captured and recaptured 44 different times. How then can we say that his name is great in Israel, his tent is in Salem, his dwelling place in Zion. There he broke the flashing arrows, the shields and the swords, the weapons of war. This city has been captured and recaptured 44 times. Where was God in all this? But the reality is that God is a God who is there. Last week we looked at the different names of God and one of those names is the very last words, uh, are, are the very last words that are in the book of Ezekiel. And Ezekiel is talking about a restored Jerusalem and a restored temple and there he gives and he said the name of that city is going to be and he uses the words Yahweh Shema and in Hebrew the word Shem is the word that means there. The name of that city and God's name is the God who is there. He is Shema. He is the God who is there. And there's a, a precious reality that you and I don't think about a whole lot. But one of the realities when we get to know God and we get to know his attributes is this thing called omnipresence. And I know that's a $5 word, but it means that God is everywhere present equally, all at the same time. And so God is the God who is there. And the practical reality is this. When life smiles, God is there. When my life goes good, God is there. God blesses me. God gives me good times. But when my life comes unglued, God is also there. I cannot explain the inequities of life. I can't explain why others had to go to war. I can't explain why others live in, in fear and in terror of guns and bombs and, and, and soldiers and police and everything else. And we live in this wonderful country called Canada. 
and I can go to bed at night, and the worst thing that I have to worry about is whether or not someone's going to walk through my yard. Or maybe scratch my motorcycle. That'd even be worse. The trouble is, my motorcycle's old enough, I've done enough damage to it, if, you know, like it really doesn't matter anymore. I don't get bent out of shape over it. But you know what? I, I can't explain that. But I do know that God is there. God dwells with his people. There is no place where we are separated from him. God walked with his people through the Red Sea and through the desert. Jesus promised that where two or three are gathered in his name, he would be present in the midst of them. God has promised to be present with his people in the land that is fairer than day. And we know about that. We sing about that. But God has also promised to be present in the land that we see and we live in right now. And I know I've been there, and you've been there. And in times of distress and in the hospital, in the cemetery, in times of heartache, you have risen up to declare the presence of God with you. If it wasn't for God, I don't know what we'd do. And the reality is that our God is, is Yahweh Shema, the God who is there. He will always be there. Turn with me to Psalm 139, one of my favorite psalms. And there's, there are facts given in this psalm about God that drive some people crazy. They don't like it. But the reality is we can take comfort in those same facts that drive other people crazy. Psalm 139. Let's start at verse 1. The Bible says, O Lord, you have searched me and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise. How does he know that? Because he's there. You perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You are familiar with all my ways. How does he know that? Because he's there. Before a word is on my tongue, you know it completely, O Lord. You hem me in. Behind and before you have laid your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too lofty for me to attain. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there. Your right hand, your hand will guide me. Your right hand will hold me fast. God is the God who is there. I can't explain. I can't explain why the God who is there would allow horrible things to happen to me and to other people. I don't know. He, he must have a purpose in that. He must be able to, and he's, he's always seen me through it. The very fact that I'm standing here before you is a testimony of God's faithfulness. He has been there, and he has brought me through, and he will continue to be there and continue to take me through. God knows what's going on because he's there. So God involves himself in my life. Another way that God involves himself in the lives of his people is that God outpowers the powerful. There are always those who are stronger than I am. As I watched some of the, and I've watched a fair bit of footage of the 
German invasion of Holland over the last couple of days. And I, I see the German soldiers dropping, paratroopers dropping out of the airplanes, and I see them marching through the streets with their guns and everything, and how I wished I could have been there. This is the human part of me with a rifle, with a silencer, and picking them off one by one. But God outpowers the powerful. I know that's not the way for me to deal with that. But God outpowers the powerful, and the situation in Israel was bad. It's one of the most invaded countries in the world. The goal of the Palestinian and Mahmoud Abbas, uh, who is the head of the PLO, said it again, or, or the head of, of uh, I forget, Hamas is the other, other organization. But Mahmoud Abbas said in, a, in an interview in, on Egyptian radio the other day that their goal is to get rid of Israel completely. On the Palestinian kids' school books, in the textbooks, there is no state of Israel. It's all Palestine. There is no room in their thinking for Israel. There is no room in Iran's thinking for the state of Israel. Many radical Muslims, the Taliban, Al-Qaeda, and others, there is no room in their thinking for Israel, and their whole goal is to drive Israel into the sea. And here's what the Bible says back in Psalm 76. And I need to find it quickly here. You are resplendent with light, verse 4, more majestic than mountains, rich with game. Valiant men lie plundered. They sleep their last sleep. Not one of the warriors can lift his hand. At your rebuke, O God of Jacob, both horse and chariot lie still. God outpowers the powerful. And God will eventually win. And I don't know if you've read the end of the book. Every once in a while, I turn to the end of this book and I read the last couple of chapters because God wins. God wins. God outpowers the powerful no matter who they think they are. God brought Israel through horrendously hard times. Times even like the Holocaust. Britain, by the way, is now thinking about removing all mention to, of, of the Holocaust from its school curriculum because it offends the Muslim population who believe that that never happened. And we've all known struggles and trials in our lives. We've all been there, or we know of others who have been there. There is evil in this present world. Yes, most of us here, living here and sitting here today, have known peace and prosperity most of our lives. But there are many in this world who have known nothing but warfare and terror and poverty and hunger and turmoil, and many of them are asking, how long, Lord, how long? But here's the reality. God is bigger and stronger than the biggest bully. If he sets up kings and deposes them, why doesn't he take down those who exploit others at every level, from the bully on the playground to those who use terrorism and military might to oppress others? God will do that. God outpowers the powerful. And here's the other blessed reality, and I talked about that a little bit already. Verse 11, make vows to the Lord your God and fulfill them. Let all the neighboring lands bring gifts to the one to be feared. He breaks the spirit of rulers. He is feared by the kings of the earth. And here's the last little bit of good news. God wins. God wins. And when he wins, so do you and I. And that's something that I can cling to. 
That's something that will carry me through trials. That is something that allows me to face death. I haven't faced it myself personally. But I've seen it in my family. I've seen it in my friends. We've seen it in this church over and over and over again. And when we stand here and when we sit here and someone is in a casket before us and, and they know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, it's a celebration because God wins. God eventually wins. Death is no longer our conqueror. That enemy has been conquered. God outpowers the powerful. He knows what's going on. He outpowers the powerful, and he eventually wins. And in that, you and I can take great comfort. Father, we are so glad that you are the God who is there. There is no place we can go in this world. There is nothing that anyone can ever do to us that will separate us from your love. Lord, yes, sometimes we go through great struggles and pain, and trials, and yet you are the God who brings us through. You are the God who is there. You know what is happening. You outpower the powerful, and you win. And we celebrate that, Lord, and we put our faith in that. And we ask that you would give us the strength and the patience to endure to the very end. Thank you for our peace and our freedom. Help us not to take it for granted. Now may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all. Amen. God bless you. Have a wonderful day. And I hope to see many of you tonight.